And good morning and good evening, good afternoon, whenever you're watching this uh, video service, our online service from Lighthouse Church, Emmonsburg, we just want to welcome you. And we're looking forward to once again into diving into God's Word. And uh, hey, I hope you turned your clocks behind uh, for this week, because that's what's going to happen. Uh, if not, uh, it's going to be a little later than what you think it is, or earlier. Uh, we are in the book of Esther, chapter 8. The series title is called For Such a Time as This. I think everyone in this world has ups and downs. And how we deal with them says a lot about our character when it comes to ups and downs. How we process them tells us a lot about our beliefs. It is an interesting turn of events when through the challenges of life we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. For the main characters in our story both Esther and Mordecai, there is still a major challenge or dilemma that is affecting them. And that is the edict of Ahasuerus that Haman had put into play for the Jews to be killed and that had been issued in, that, in the nation of uh, Persia. And so even though things have turned around, the arch enemy of the Jews, Haman, has been hanged, there's still an edict, there's still a law hanging over their heads that in the month of Adar, what's going to be happening at this point is that anyone does, has anything against the Jewish nation that are living in that um, country of Persia, can be, they can be annihilated, killed, uh, whatever. And so there's still that issue. And both the main characters, Mordecai and Esther, will have to address this situation before a king who is known for his ruthlessness. This is how the story plays out today. But before we go there, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing. Father God, we come before you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the life of Esther, for Mordecai, and Lord, for how the events play out in the book of Esther. We're thankful, Father, that you are sovereign in the affairs of men, that, Lord, a man can plan his steps, but, uh, or a man can devise his way, but, Lord, you are the one who can definitely plans his steps. Lord, you have that way. So, Father, as we go into your word today, just guide us into your truth, and we pray for your blessing upon us as we study the word of God once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you got your Bibles, I'd like you to follow along with me as I read from the book of Esther, chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther told, had told what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamida, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity which is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then king Ahasuerus said to queen Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. 
but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and the seal it and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And the king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to what Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps, to the governors, the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote it in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that it might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, was the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used by the, in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Boy, that's quite a story to see how God worked in that situation and circumstance amongst the nation of Israel. In the circumstance. We pick it up, of course, in verse 1, where King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai comes before the king and had Esther had told him what he was to her. So Esther received the wealth of Haman. What a reversal of events. And Mordecai received the position of Haman. Both were rewards from King Xerxes. This is the same king who not long ago had promoted Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and who'd willingly agreed to his plot to annihilate the entire race of a people called the Jewish nation. The king had given Haman's a thumbs up and now ends up giving Haman's a thumbs down, condemning him to hang on his own gallows. What a reversal of events. One might write on his gravestone, Haman, the enemy of God. Anyone who is an enemy of the Jews is by defined default an enemy of a covenant-keeping God of the Jewish nation. God's oath in Genesis 12, 3, and we've repeated this over the weeks, is that it should be inscribed at the door of everyone who seeks God's favor. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. God always keeps his word. If Esther had perhaps declared her secret sooner, uh, Haman would have known it and might have had found some diabolical means of, in a sense, destroying even the queen herself and all the Jews. If she declared it later, someone else in the meantime might have got a hold of the office instead of Mordecai. The timing and events, we see the hand of God. Yes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. 
In verse 2, we see the king took the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What's that mean? Apparently, before he was hanged, the king took the signet ring off Haman, and the actual Septuagint actually says he took it by force, literally meaning he cut it off his hand. And so the signet ring, which would be the symbol of, uh, the visible symbol of Mordecai's office, was for his high honor and for the king esteeming Mordecai so well. And so, to a certain degree, when people saw the signet ring on Mordecai, it signaled to them the king's blessing upon that individual and his authority as well. So, the king's signet ring was used to seal affidavits, documents, which carried the king's authority. So we see it was a result of God's providential working behind the scene that the very ring used by Haman to seal the fate of the Jews was now placed on a Jew himself. Isn't that irony? It says that Esther then set Mordecai, her uncle, over the house of Haman. Clearly the queen had authority in the Persian kingdom. As noted, the king gave Haman's estate to Esther and Esther gave the glory of Haman's riches to Mordecai. The king bestowed fame and honor on Esther. And then again, this is again the evidential, providential working of God in the lives of his people. God does bless those and bless us when we seek to serve him and follow him all the days of our life. And so in this situation, God was bringing blessing upon Esther and Esther in turn was bringing blessing upon Mordecai. And in turn, the whole nation of Israel would be blessed by what God was doing. And so God is the avenger of the evil that Haman tried to perpetrate against Mordecai and uh, through uh, his edict. But again, I, I, I want to caution us sometimes because sometimes we, we have this teaching that gets out there that uh, God always blesses us people. There's no challenge. Ward Worsby, I think, puts a good word to this. He says this, God doesn't always give this kind of happy ending to everybody's story. Do you hear that? Today, not all faithful Christians get promoted. Not everyone gets special honors. Some of them get fired because of their stand for Jesus Christ. And so let's not take this story as a means of that means that God always blesses, always, God always raises people up. God always does No, no, that's not true. In this story, yes, that is, the, that is what happens. But not always in every situation. Every story. God, who is in authority over us, blesses those whom he chooses to bless and sometimes doesn't. And that's all okay because, hey, God as our Father knows what's best in each one of our lives. See, if God doesn't promote us here on earth, uh, he certainly will when we get to glory. Uh, wrote this, God hasn't promised that we'll be promoted and made rich, but he has assured us that he's in control of all circumstances and that he will write the last chapter of our story. That's something that we need to take home and think on. We see in verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot which he had devised against the Jews. So she comes to his presence. This marks a separate encounter, and the one in which she was not summoned, or as indicated by the fact that the king extends the golden scepter to her because... There's a, sense, there's a sense in which Esther at this point, not a sense that she is interceding at the king's throne 
which resulted her people, the Israelites, to be saved from actual death. When it says she fell asleep, this, in a sense, reflects a different approach that Esther had the first time when she came to the king. Earlier, the queen, when she came to the king, putting her life in her hands, was standing. This time, she is at his feet. She falls at his feet. She's weeping. And such a prostate attitude, I believe, expresses the utmost lowliness and humility before the king. And again, again, remember, Esther is wise. And I think God is, in a sense, working in her heart and her life. And she knows how to approach this ruthless, evil king uh, with the means of saving her people. Whether she knew it or not, uh, it is eternally true that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in every situation, God is looking for people that in humility want to serve him and show that humbleness. She weeps this time, which she had not done in the earlier encounter with the king. Well, why is she weeping? She surely knows that there's a chance the king could, in a sense, deny her request and say, no, not going to happen. The law that is now duly enacted law cannot be reversed. This edict that Haman had put into play with the king's signet ring, with his authority, could not be changed. That was the law of the Medes and the Persians. It was well known. Although Haman had been executed, his edict was still in effect. This law to annihilate the Jews was still in play. So Esther was wise and careful and not implicating the king in what was going on, and, but gives Haman full ownership of this edict that was out to uh, devise to destroy her people. We see in verse 4, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. This statement applies the queen, is, as I said earlier, is this is the second time she's coming to his presence without being summoned. It's another evidence of her sincerity when at the, in the first instance when she came before the king, she said, if I perish, I perish. She realized that if she came in the king's presence without, him, without being summoned, it could be a death sentence for her. That was the day, the time, the culture in Persia. And we have to respect that because sometimes we think to ourselves, well, okay, this is an interesting story. But just sometimes when you really dig into Scripture, you need to look at the cultural aspects of the story to really get the full magnitude of what is really happening here. To us, to, if you weren't summoned to have a death sentence placed upon your head, that, that just we don't correlate the, the, the magnitude of what was really going on. And so however the king's gesture and clear sign of his approval and acceptance encourage Esther to specify her petition as to how she could avert this evil edict that Haman had put into play to wipe out her people. And so we see this queen who God is using her burden and her passion for her people, the people of God. And she says in verse 5, she says, And if it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, if this thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamida, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And notice what she says, please, if I found favor, if it seems proper, if it's pleasing your sight. These are all uh, sentences which I see, you see a humble, contrite attitude as she approaches him. She is skillful, and yet she's cautious in her approach to the king even though that's her husband. And again, remember the culture, remember the situation. 
Remember, the king himself had been, albeit unknowingly, party to the plot to kill the Jews in the first place. So caution was the better part of Esther's uh, approach in the situation to address this evil despot king. And then verse 6, she says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The latter half of this verse in the Septuagint is translated into the English like this. How shall I be able to survive the destruction of my kindred? How can I survive the destruction of my family? And this is really what we call the climax of Esther's appeal to King Ahasuerus. She's appealing to the king's heart, to his affection. If you love me, <laughs> if you really care about me, we need to do something about this. Earlier, he would have given up half the, the kingdom, uh, an early figure of speech. But now this final plea moves him to give him, in a sense, all of the kingdom and a new edict that will affect every province of the country. Earlier, Esther had identified himself with her people for whom she had interceded. Although we can't say it with certainty, it appears that King Xerxes had fully not really comprehended back in chapter 7 that Esther's people were in actual fact the Jewish nation who this edict was against. Which makes you kind of wonder, come on, Ahasuerus, are you that clueless to not comprehend this thing? And that's why I challenged you last week from God's Word. We need to pray for those in authority over us, whether it's the federal government, whether it's the provincial government, whether it's municipal governments. They need God's wisdom. They need God's direction. And so rather than bad-mouthing the government, we need to be in prayer because God, God has placed them in authority over us. That's what Scripture teaches. So even in the situation with Esther, she was very wise, very cautious. And I'm sure people were praying for her as she was interceding on her behalf, especially Mordecai, her uncle. And then he says in verse 7, notice this. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Obviously, uh, that Mordecai apparently was in the room when Esther was falling before the king's feet, weeping and imploring, and if Esther is a Jew and the law cannot be repealed, theoretically, think about it. What would happen to Queen Esther? Well, such thoughts even entered into the king's thinking and reasoning uh, is really, really unclear. Scripture doesn't make that clear to us. But at least it's possible. We see in verse 8, he says, But you may write, and here's the king speaking, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The law is immediate prayer. Once, that's, once you write something down in my name and you put that ring on it, it's a done deal. So he gives him a kind of a carte blanche. He said uh, to Esther and Mordecai, uh, you know what, write down what you think is wise, write down what you think is important, and uh, just look after it. This is interesting because the queen had not put any words in the king's mouth but in the next course of action shows her discretion in that. Again, it it's shows us the providential hand of God and orchestrating what is going on in this situation. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. 
What's that really saying to us, that scripture? That says that God has control of those in authority over it, and he can change governments, he can change leadership. God has the ability to change the hearts of those who govern over us. What an impetus for you and I to remember that why we need to pray for those in authority, why we need to pray for those in government, because God is the only one that can change their hearts. Do you hear that? Only God can change their hearts. That's why we need to pray for them, that God would indeed change their hearts. We see in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written concerning to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also the Jews in their script and their language. Remember that uh, the original script by Haman was written actually in the 13th day of the first month. So this left eight months and 20 days until Haman and Mordecai's decrees would both become effective. In other words, the Jews would have almost nine months to prepare to defend themselves against anybody that would carry out Haman's edict against them. Remember the reason they had such a long warning and preparatory time was because the superstitious Haman had called for the roll of the dice, the pure, to determine which day he should carry out the Jewish extermination. And since God really controls everything, including the roll of the dice, the day of destruction fell 12 months from the actual evil edict that was sent to the 127 provinces. So now they have roughly about nine months to prepare so that anybody that wants to wipe them out and destroy and annihilate them, they can defend themselves. Clearly, God was orchestrating and working to save the Jews from annihilation at this point. We see in verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, that's Mordecai, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, which was on his hand now. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. And so this very same action was taken by Haman back in chapter 3, verse 12. And so it says there in verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So this is the key to counter the edict, to give the Jewish people time and also to be able to arm themselves fully against any attack because of this law that had been placed in effect, this edict by Haman, to protect themselves from attack. And so the term destroy, kill, and annihilate is actually also taken from the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 13, where it was the same phrase that Haman had used to talk about the Jewish nation. So we see in verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance against their enemies. So that way the Jews would be prepared, ready, to at least mount a defense. And so we see in verse 14, so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service and rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. As if the king really, in a sense, understands the urgency, and although there's almost eight months, almost nine months, uh, both edicts would dramatically clash, 
and the more time that the Jews had to prepare themselves. So he said, I want to get the word out as quickly as possible. One of the commentators on this passage, Dr. Warren Worsby, contrasts the sense of urgency among the ancients with the often complacent attitude of the church with his life-saving message of the gospel. He said, it's interesting how quickly this message needed to get out so that the Jews could save themselves. But sometimes the church today is complacent in getting the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ out to a lost world that needs to hear that people need to be saved, that people need to be saved from their sin and need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The church today has become complacent. The church today has become misdirected and talking about everything else under the sun except the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If only the church today were like those secretaries and couriers, says Ward Worsby, how we need to tell the peoples of the world in their own language the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, God has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Share and, 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 and preach the gospel and make known this message to, to people. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which uh, some reason we tend to linger or we balk or we get involved and wrapped up with other things. If a group of pagan scribes and messengers without modern means of transportation could take Mordecai's decree to the entire empire, how much more should the church of Jesus Christ be involved in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to people who are lost, dying, and going to hell without Christ that need to hear this message? We see in verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai's royal apparel befitted his new position as second commander, in a sense like the prime minister for King Ahasuerus. It was the first reward for saving the king. And blue and white were actually the royal colors of the nation of Persia. God's purpose in all these matters is it goes further than the sparing of the Jewish from, Jews from destruction. He's also purposed to raise up Mordecai as a prime minister to, as a replacement of Haman to give godly leadership in a nation that desperately needed uh, a sense of God's presence and God's direction to a man of God. It says the Jews, in verse 16, had light and gladness and joy and honor. Notice that, the, that, that what happens here is that there was a sense in which now, because the Jewish nation was able to defend themselves, because of the decree of the king, they are now confident of victory and able to rejoice Oh, thank goodness. We can now defend ourselves. We can arm ourselves. We can be protected against these attacks of evil against us. So the fear of impending doom is gone. And the Jews find themselves now uh, in lightness. There's joy. We can protect ourselves. We can defend ourselves. As a matter of fact, we can attack those who attack us. The dark cloud that hung over them, in a sense, was dispelled. And again, the sunshine of prosperity in their lives was now raining once again because... There was light in this situation. It's a contrast, in a sense, at the beginning of this chapter with Esther in tears and ending in gladness and joy. And also, also that the gladness and joy was probably several months before the day that they would have to defend themselves. But the rejoicing of the turn of events and lies. Prior to the second edict, they were doomed, they were mourning, but now the mourning had been returned turn to rejoicing. 
It says also, kind of an interesting phrase here. It says, many among the peoples of the land became Jews. Well, that's kind of intriguing. Non-Jews became proselytes embracing the religion of the Jews. Well, why did they become Jewish proselytes? Why, Why did they want to become Jews? The short answer is that God was with the Jews. In the final analysis of the battle was the Lord's. And for the enemies of the Jews had invoked the curse of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. A curse that God had sworn he would fill. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. So in conclusion, uh, what do we learn from this story for you and I? Yeah, what do we learn? One, God watches over his people. You know, that can be encouraging. Yes, it should be encouraging because like our Heavenly Father, he watches over his children. He cares. Not only does he watch over his people, God protects his people. And he gives a means, even in the space of evil, for them to be able to defend themselves in this situation, in these vast circumstances. And another point that comes from the story is this. God works in the hearts of men that do not know him. Did God work in Ahasuerus' life? The answer is yes. How did he do that? By using Esther, by using Mordecai, by using godly people to speak into an unsaved governor's or king's life. He used that for his purposes. You think about this. For those of you who profess to know Jesus Christ, God can use your words, your wisdom, to speak into unsaved leadership in your community, in your province, even in your, in, over this country of Canada, by you standing up for what's right, by speaking up for what's true, and, re- and speaking God's truth in humility and grace. Also, we see that God works in the hearts of those who are committed to Him. And God's looking for that. I thought of that passage today in Second Chronicles 16.9. Read these. You, you should remember this. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That's from the NLT. Uh, What's that passage saying? That God is looking. He's looking throughout this whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to Him. Hey, is your heart committed to following Jesus Christ? That God wants to strengthen that. Unless I close with this last verse. Proverbs 16, 9. We need to repeat this over and over. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. You know, we can make a lot of plans in our lives, my friend, a lot of plans. And and what we need to realize about these plans that we have is that we can make a lot of plans, but it is God who devises our steps. You might have made plans for your life. You you might have had some ideas of what you wanted to do, but as you follow God, he will direct your steps in the right way. And that should be an encouragement to you, that as you look at your life, and you look back for what's happened, you should be able to see the hand of God directing your steps through every situation, through every circumstance, because as our Heavenly Father, He loves His children, and He wants them to walk in His way. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word to our hearts this day. Thank You, Lord, for this story from the book of Esther. Lord, we're grateful that as our Heavenly Father, that You love us, You care for us, You watch over us. And Lord, that Your plan... Your ways always trump our ways. 
Father, we're thankful that you and your sovereignty, you know what is best for us. Help us to trust you, Lord, in your direction and your plans for our lives. And help us to humbly submit to what you want to do in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and I hope you have a great week.